Amen. Good morning, Word of Grace. How are you this morning? Morning. That was a little stronger than First Service's first response. Their first response was so bad, I had to walk off stage. No, I'm kidding. I had to, had to call them out. So you were a little more present. But I think, I think you have a little bit more in you. How are you this morning? Good. Praise God. It's a beautiful day. God is good. And, and just, man, if my perspective is in a wrong or weird place, that song, Christ Alone, just resets me. I love that song. I love worshiping with my church family, especially with that song. We've been in our series, Missional Moments, where we started the first week talking about how we want to be intentional with what God has given us and use what God has given us for His purposes for our lives, for His glory, and how we want to give an account one day, or how we're going to, whether we want to or not, we're going to give an account one day for what God has given us. And so we want to be aware, be available, be sensitive uh, to the Lord so that we can be used by Him in different situations. They kind of talked about that a little bit, Dave and Jill, in that video. And next week we talked about family discipleship, how the first mission field is the home. That the home is the very first mission field. That's where we need to prioritize uh, discipleship of our family. And then the week after that, which would have been last week, we talked about the next level or extension of missional living being the call to the one another's of Scripture. That the hundred times in the New Testament, the phrase one another or a relative phrase is put in there, 59 of those times being commands from God for us to live on His mission, serving and loving one another. And so the mission to be the family of God. Today, we consider the missional call to love our neighbors, to be missional in our community. And as we prepare, I want you to go to Luke chapter 10. As you're turning, I want to get a little bit of context out there for Luke. Luke is the only author of Scripture that was a Gentile, meaning he was not a Jew, not a Hebrew. And so uh, Jew, uh, I'm sorry, Luke, as he wrote his account, his gospel account of Jesus' life, there are a couple of angles, perspectives, and themes in his gospel account that you might not have seen as present in the other gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. See, Luke, what we can see in several of the stories that he highlights that were not in the other gospels, we can start to see some of a theme that Luke, being a Gentile, not a Jew, chose to highlight quite a few stories of Jesus' love for the outcast, for the outsider, for the other people. We can see it in uh, Luke chapter 17 where Jesus loves and heals the ten lepers. Lepers in biblical days were the outcasts of outcasts. They had to have their own colony, their own community outside of the city so they didn't give anyone else leprosy. They were the epitome of outcasts and excluded so we saw that in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 15, we hear the famous story of the prodigal son, where Jesus gives the, the parable uh, scenario of the son who went away and made a mess of his life. The person that the religious people, the super spiritual people, which is symbolized in the older brother, would look at with disgust. And Jesus points out, no, the father's heart is to welcome back and to say, you're, my son was dead, he's alive. Your brother was dead, he's alive. So we see that outcast brought back in right there. 
In Luke chapter 7, we see the account of the prostitute that comes to Jesus. When Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, eating with the Pharisee, and the prostitute comes in, breaks her bottle of expensive perfume over his feet, and with her tears and her hair, washes Jesus' feet. The Pharisee gets offended, upset, and goes, man, if Jesus, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is washing his feet right now. And so we see this outcast right there who has made a mess of her life that Jesus loves. And then in Luke chapter uh, 19, we see a famous wee little man named Zacchaeus, right? Short fella who is a chief tax, tax collector, not only a tax collector, a chief tax collector, which means he was very rich and very hated by Jews, that they hated him and his colleagues because they would rob the Jews by, by tweaking and manipulating how much taxes they were supposed to pay so they could pocket it themselves. So Jews saw tax collectors and especially a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus and would curl their nose and their lip with disgust for him, we see multiple accounts in Luke's gospel of Jesus loving and welcoming and forgiving and healing and setting free the others. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10 with what is probably the most famous parable that Jesus taught, that of the Good Samaritan. So let's start reading in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So Jesus is teaching everyone sitting down. A lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. What's a lawyer? In this day, it's someone who is an expert in the law, the Torah. And not only are they an expert in the law and the Torah, they teach younger men the law and the Torah. They raise them up to understand and know the law. And also there's someone who would settle disputes between two people over the law. This is who stood up to test Jesus, putting him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? There's a lot of scholars who think that right here, this Jesus' answer to this question is just dripping with sarcasm. That this lawyer says to Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And to the lawyer, Jesus goes, well, you're the expert. You know what it says. How do we? He answered in verse 27. Well, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that we talked about a few weeks ago. Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Right there, he's quoting the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he goes to Leviticus 19 to quote, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now a few things. Jesus talking to this lawyer who knows the law, who Jesus already might be being a little sarcastic with by saying, well, you know the law. Tell us, how do we? And he says, well, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he goes to Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job. Yeah, that's right. That's, 
That's how you inherit eternal life. So is Jesus advocating for works-based righteousness? That as long as you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that you will inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God? Yes. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Pastor Stephen, don't forget Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's works what you're talking about. Right, right. Has anybody ever done that? No. Except for the one man this lawyer is talking to, Jesus, who's talking to the lawyer and says, yeah, actually, you're, you're preaching truth, buddy. Yeah, go ahead and love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, you got it. If you can do that, you will live. And the interesting thing that we see unfold in the next few verses is that this lawyer at these two accounts from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, when looking at the Shema of love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, he thinks he's got that. Now, by show of hands, is anyone here brave enough to go, I love the Lord, the God, Lord God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength? Anybody ever just totally nailed that, fulfilled it? No. You know better. We do love God with everything we've got in our high moments and the moments where we're doing well, where we're full of the Spirit and where we're hungry for the things of God. Absolutely, by the grace of God, we love God, but we still lack because we're not perfect like Jesus. Jesus, the only one who's actually done this, is saying, yeah, if you can do that, if you can fulfill the law, then you'll be saved by it. Newsflash, you can't. But this lawyer thinks he's got that. Because what do we see in his next question? We go on to verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. Notice, he quotes the law that he knows. Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And for some reason, when he quotes the law, and then Jesus says, yeah, that's it, he feels this need to justify himself. Because just like you and me, his conscience would be preaching at him saying, you don't got that. But desiring to justify himself, according to the law that he knew, not only the Torah, but also the oral law that he would be so familiar with, the Pharisaical law that he would know, according to the lifestyle that he grew up in, the things that he saw modeled, all those things combined together for his perspective to where he could go, I think I've got that one. Desiring to justify himself, he goes to the one that he's not so sure that he's got. And he says this, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So he doesn't even think that there's a problem with the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he's trying to figure out, how can I justify myself here? Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because if Leviticus 19 is telling me that I have to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, I think I could probably figure that out and do that. But who are we really talking about here? And he was probably expecting Jesus to go, well, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. Your neighbor is the Jew, the Hebrew, your brother under Abraham. That's your neighbor, and that's who you need to love. 
But Jesus is just so smart. And he doesn't answer the way that he wants them to answer. In fact, Jesus doesn't even just give a straight answer. Jesus goes, well, let me tell you a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half for dead. A little geography and history. The rude, the rude, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jerusalem was up on the mount, and there was a very windy, dangerous, tight cliffside road that went down to Jericho, where there was a lot of nooks in the rocks, was, there still is, uh, a lot of nooks in the rocks, a lot of places where robbers could hide easily. It was so dangerous because of this that this path became known as the blood pass because so much blood was shed between Jerusalem and Jericho that if someone decided to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, 18 miles by themselves, there's a really good chance some bad stuff is going to befall them. This is where this road is happening. This story happens on that road. This guy goes by himself. The implications of the story and the storyteller and the context here is that this is a Jew, a Hebrew. This lawyer is a Jew and a Hebrew. And they stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. They basically, they're leaving him for dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest, ooh, one of God's ministers, one of God's mediators, a fellow Israel, a brother, a priest. This is someone that the lawyer would have heard. A priest, oh, that's, that's my colleague. That's someone that I can associate with and understand. A priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he saw him. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by the other side. Levites were not priests, but they were of the priestly lineage and family, where this is not someone who would be offering the sacrifices in the holy place like the high priest would, but there's someone who would be working in the temple and serving in the temple. The Levite was the holy tribe that ministered to the Lord and served in his temple. So here's two people that Jesus points out in this parable saying, yeah, the priest came and saw him. Uh, I got a meeting I've really got to get to. I better, I, I don't really have time today. Or maybe it wasn't time. He and the Levite, possibly it was that they were going down the blood pass and they get to see this one man who obviously experienced the dark side of the blood pass. And they start thinking, man, if I stop and help this dude, what's going to happen to me? That very well could be. Who knows what it was? Either way, they saw him, they step aside, and they move forward. Let's keep reading in verse 33. But a Samaritan, pause. We call this parable the story, what? The good Samaritan. And today, in our day and age and in our society, a lot of us don't even know what this means. A lot of us hear Samaritan and we think for, because of this story, this, a Samaritan is a person who's a do-gooder. A Samaritan is a person who sees someone in need and goes and does something for them. That's what a Samaritan is. In fact, we have good Samaritan laws in our society. This passage has has inspired laws in our society today. And so many, many, many people think that a Samaritan equals a good person who does good things for people in need. But 
a little history and context for us. A Samaritan, to say a Samaritan would be the equivalent of me saying a Mexican or a Canadian or a French or a German or a Russian. A Samaritan was a people from the area, the region of Samaria. About a, a few hundred years before Jesus was on the scene in Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there was a time where uh, the northern kingdom was not doing so good in following God's ways. And because of that, God had to discipline them. And he sent the uh, Assyrian army into Israel, the northern kingdom, to conquer them, to take them captive, and to exile them. And he brought most of the Israelites, not all of them, but he brought most of them out of the land of the northern kingdom. At the same time the king of Assyria did that, he looks at this empty northern kingdom of Israel, mostly empty, and he sends a bunch of foreigners, a bunch of pagans, a bunch of not God-loving, not God-worshipping followers, uh, but people who worshipped other gods and other idols. And those people came in and inhabited the northern kingdom of Israel. Years and years go on, and then those Israelites that were in the land began taking marriage with, with uh, these foreigners. And this region in this area became known as Samaria. And these half-blood, um, half-Jews, half-pagans were Samaritans. Now, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, hated with a deep, deep passion. See, the Samaritans, since they married these foreigners and these outsiders, they began worshiping a lot of their gods. Not only that, but they took the Torah and they began to tweak and change the Torah, the law of God, to accommodate their new worship and their new lifestyle. And so the Israelites, or the people who were the followers of, of Yahweh, they became very disdained and very dis detestant towards these Samaritans. They hated them. Samaritans hated the Jews because of that. And they would go back and forth over, throughout eras of history, uh, having the better over the other, hating each other. The, uh, they would get the, there would be times where the Samaritans would get help from other kingdoms fighting against Israel and back and forth. It was just a nasty relationship. They hated each other. And because of the new Torah that the Samaritans tweaked and changed, not only that, they couldn't go to Jerusalem, the Israelites' city, holy city, to worship in the temple. So they made their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. This is where in John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. Remember, Jesus goes to this woman at the well. And he starts talking to her. And she goes, whoa, Jesus. Well, I don't, she didn't say Jesus, but she says to him, hey, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? One more account showing us the tension, the hatred, like the, this is taboo. It's not okay. And Jesus goes into this wonderful account where he starts confronting what's in her heart. She gets uncomfortable and she goes, uh, wow, uh, well, I perceive you're a prophet, sir. So, uh, um, you know, our people say that we should worship on Mount Gerizim. Your people say that we should worship on Jerusalem. What do you say? Can we please stop talking about my life? And Jesus loves and ministers to that Samaritan woman and makes a believer out of her. And it is that dynamic of relationship of hatred between the Samaritan and the Jew. To the Jew, the professional Jew, this lawyer, that Jesus is telling this story, 
And he says, and a Samaritan came next to see that man on the road left for dead. If this story, Jesus was telling this story in this room today, it might sound like, well, there was a man who went into the ghetto at nighttime. He shouldn't have done that. And he got jumped and mugged, beat up and robbed and left for dead. And then a pastor had a meeting and came by and saw him and stepped aside and went about his way. And then a deacon also came by. I guess they were at the same meeting. Saw the guy there and went about his way too. And then a Muslim came by. That's kind of what's happening here. It's not exactly what he's saying, but I want you to feel the tension of the dynamic of this story. These people, who's like, oh, enemies of God's people, different message, different priorities, different holy writings. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, this lawyer probably just goes, oof. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. So he walked the rest of the way. It's an 18-mile journey. Set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. It's about two weeks, uh, uh, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." So he had this relationship with the innkeeper, where the innkeeper could trust his word. There, he said, "If he costs more than this, I'll pay you the difference when he comes back." Verse thirty-six. Jesus says this. He turns the question on him. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? the man who fell among the robbers. Jesus didn't point out these three characters and say, which one of these should be your neighbor? He flipped the question on him and said, now which of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice the Samaritan when the Samaritan, unlike the others, saw the man laying there left for dead, the Samaritan, Jesus didn't say, and he saw him and knew that the law required him to act on his behalf. That's not what I said. He saw him and had compassion for him. He saw him and his heart was broken for that man who was left there for dead. It was what was in that Samaritan's heart that caused him to act, something that didn't seem to be in the heart of the priest or of the Levite. See, the difference between a facade of outreach and genuine acts of compassion is the heart of the individual. That's our bottom line today. I'm going to say that one more time. The difference between a facade of outreach and genuine acts of compassion is the heart of the individual. What's going on inside the heart? 
the two saw the guy who was in trouble and all they could think about was whatever other reasons that were of their self-interest to not make them stop and care. The Samaritan who would have been probably hated if, if this guy who's going down the blood pass doesn't get jumped and sees a Samaritan, they're probably cutting eyes at each other. But this Samaritan had something in his heart to look at this guy who was supposed to be socially his enemy, who was supposed to be a person that he would hate, who was probably raised to hate that guy, and his heart had compassion. Someone who he was supposed to be enemies with. He had compassion for them. See, we see that this story has a little bit more than just being something to teach us moral lessons on how we ought to serve those who are in need. Should we? Absolutely. Do we see good takeaways in this story telling us that? Absolutely. We can see in the life of the Samaritan that he saw. He was willing, available, and sensitive to the needs of that individual to where he was willing to act on his behalf. He was available to be used to help that guy. Not only that, but he gets off of his donkey after using his wine and his oil, which would have cost money, to take care of repairing these guy's wounds, puts him up on his donkey and walks the rest of the way to Jericho, gets there, pays two days' wages to put him in a hotel, and then says, hey, this is enough money that two denarii would have been two days wages, enough to keep him there for about two weeks. Says, if it takes more than this to take care of him, you know me, I'm coming back. I'm good for it. Just keep a tab and I'll take care of him. See, even if, even if it wasn't, if, if the priest or the Levite would have gone, oh, you know what, I guess I better take care of this guy. Would they have gone to these lengths? They might have just gone, oh, let me help get him, and maybe I'll get him to Jericho, and then, all right, buddy, figure it out. This guy did everything he could possibly do to love and care for this person in need. Why? Because he saw him, and he had compassion. It was a heart position. There was something in the Samaritan's heart that moved him to take care of this person who everyone told him would be the enemy. See, Jesus flips the question back on the lawyer. It's not about who is your neighbor, who are you supposed to love. The question is, are you a good neighbor? The way he tells the story, he says, which one of these guys was a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? He's saying the point of the story isn't which one of these guys do you need to be a neighbor to. It's which one of these guys is a neighbor? Which one of these guys gets it? And then he says, yeah, you're right again. It is the one who had mercy on the guy who fell among the robbers. That's the guy who was a neighbor. Now you go and do likewise. This lawyer who was hoping for a simple answer or hoping for a way he could trick Jesus was probably, again, expecting Jesus to say, well, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. That's who your neighbor is. Love them, serve them, take care of them, give, take care of whatever needs they might have that you can fulfill. Absolutely. But see, the way you view and speak about and treat the others indicates what's really in your heart. 
the others, the people that we might have others telling us are the enemy, the people that our circle tells us they're the bad guys, the way that we view them, the way that we talk about them, the way that we step out and move in compassion for them reveals what's in our heart. How do we see and talk about and act towards those on the other side of the political aisle? How do we see and act towards and talk about those of other religions? How do we see and talk about and act towards those who live lifestyles we don't agree with? Reveals a lot of what's in our heart. Reveals a lot of what's in our heart. It was the one who had the compassion in his heart that went down to the one who he was supposed to hate and served. See, Jesus telling this story isn't trying to give the guy the simple answer to his question. Jesus sees this lawyer who's confident in his own works, confident in his own love for God, even though misplaced confidence, and tries to tell a story to get this guy to self-diagnose that his heart is not actually after God and he doesn't actually love his neighbors the way that he thinks he does. We can see this in the context, if we go back to the earlier parts of the chapter, Luke 10, if we jump a little ahead of where we read, in verse 21, Jesus had just finished sending out 72 disciples. He gave them his authority to preach and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they did. And they came back and they're like, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is amazing. And Jesus said, man, that's great. But hey, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice over the fact that your name is written in heaven. If you're going to rejoice, if you're going to celebrate, rejoice over the fact that you belong to God. And then after that, he says this. In verse 21, it says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus, rejoicing to the Father in the Holy Spirit, says, Father, I rejoice. Thank you that you have revealed these things to your children. When he says children, it's the same way that that verse that Dave Funkhauser in the video read from 1 John, where he said, children, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And later in that letter, the apostle John would say, um, little children abstain from idols. He wasn't saying kids abstain from idols and adults, you can uh, participate in idols. He's saying, you're a child of God. This was a term he was using for the children of God, the followers of God. Same thing right here. Jesus is saying, Father, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to your children. Thank you for doing that. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and to anyone whom or and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him then the disciples had said privately blessed 
or then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. He said, there's people who don't see, they don't understand. He said, blessed are the eyes who see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See, in the context leading into this parable of the Good Samaritan, we see the sovereign wisdom of God that as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke's words as he wrote this gospel, that Luke cites Jesus' words of how there are those who think themselves wise that do not see. There are those who think they understand and they do not hear. Luke points out that account of Jesus saying that and then we go into this account where there's a man who thinks he's wise but does not see, who thinks he understands but does not hear. This lawyer who's got it all figured out, who's probably and quite honestly very confident in his relationship with God. And when Jesus affirms the truth that he preached, at least gets a little bit uncomfortable internally to the extent where he goes, oh, how can I justify myself here? I mean, who really is my neighbor? Jesus telling this story of the Good Samaritan is a diagnostic for the lawyer so that the lawyer would hear this and go, oh, what's going on in my heart? Do I actually, do I actually really love God with all I've got? Am I a neighbor who has it in my heart to act out of compassion for those that would be deemed undesirable, unlovable, other, different, that I would disagree with. What's in my heart is what's going to come out. Because see, that, fair, or that lawyer, he wanted the answer so that he could go, ah, okay, so it is Israel. I've got that. I'm good. And he would have stood even firmer in his deceived self-righteousness going, oh, okay, I've got to love my Israelites. Yeah, I got that. And he would have gone, these are the things I've got to do to be righteous. See, wrongly motivated outreach, wrongly motivated outreach becomes a tactic we use to convince ourselves that we are justified before God. Wrongly motivated outreach. You can have two people doing the exact same thing with different things happening in their hearts one of them is glorifying God and the other is glorifying themselves. Why? Because one has received the gospel, been saved by the grace of God, recognizes they've been given more than they could ever earn in the forgiveness that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing Jesus paid the price on the cross for my sin. I could never earn that. I couldn't pay for it. Jesus graciously did it for me. And all I had to do was place my faith in him. And since he's welcomed me back into his family because I believe and I've repented of my sin and placed my faith in him, man, Everything I have is not my own. This is what happened in Acts chapter 4. The people heard the gospel. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. And they go, man, guys, you know what? I got some stuff I could sell. Who needs stuff? I could take care of your need. Do you need something? Because I've got all this stuff and Jesus has saved me. And I just realized now it's just stuff. 
but you have need and you have need and maybe you need my stuff. Or you have need and you have need, maybe you need my money. You have need and you have need, maybe you need my time, maybe you need my oil and my wine to care for your wounds. Maybe you need my labor, my service, my chainsaw. Maybe you need my skills, my talents. But what it all comes back to is there compassion in the heart born there by the Holy Spirit of God. Where you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and he changes your heart to where when you look at the other person who used to be the enemy, you now look at them as the prisoner of war. That sinner that you used to go, oh, can't believe they live that way. Don't they know what the Bible says? Don't they know better? How could they? I'm thankful I don't live like that. Lawyer. Pharisee. Been there many times. And guess what? I stick my toe in those waters from time to time too. And when I do, I need the Holy Spirit to confront me or my loving brother or sister to say, hey, and bring me to conviction of the Holy Spirit whereby I can repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. That does not bring honor and glory to you. Forgive me. Help me love not only my brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love the others as Jesus did and does and as we are called to. See, wrongly motivated outreach becomes a virtue signal to others. And we got to how do I show other people? We would never say these things out of our mouth. But we have them in our hearts sometimes. Uh, I don't want people to think that I'm selfish. I don't want people to think that I only care about myself. I don't want people to think that I'm racist. I don't want people to think that I'm homophobic. I don't want people to think whatever. He just went there. Oh, shoot. And so since I don't want people to think that, I'm going to do this thing so people will think. Or maybe... So I will think when I know better. And are we going to be the children that Jesus rejoiced over that said, I'm thankful, Father, that, that they, they see? Or are we going to be the lawyer who thinks we know, who thinks we've got it, thinks we understand, who would hear this parable and just sitting there going, am I justified or not? Am I right before God or not? What else do I have to do? Should we outreach in the community? Duh. Right? We all know that. You don't need me up here to say, come on, guys, we need to be more into the community. We know that. The question is, has God changed our hearts to where we see the needs of others and compassion is stirred within us? to where it even goes above and beyond and over the things that we see in the others that we self-righteously hate. And we are allowed to divide us instead of being the minister of reconciliation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're seeing that person not as the enemy, that disgusting sinner who I'm better than. We see them as a prisoner of war who we're going, man, how can I get the truth to them? It's not some self-righteous judgmental thing. It's that I was there. I was dead in sin. I was a prisoner. And I've been set free. 
they're in prison. Well, my loving service to them maybe show them that there's a way out. Well, me giving the oil and the wine to their wounds maybe show them that there's a God who loves them and cares for them and that I'm not the hateful bigot they think I am and that even though I might not agree, even though I might have some different perspectives, could maybe God use me to love them in a way that might open them up to the love and truth of Jesus Christ? See, rightly motivated outreach becomes an overflow of the love of God that he has given to us. Rightly motivated outreach is driven by the gospel. Really quickly, last minute, I'm just going to super, you don't have to turn there because of time's sake. Matthew 25, Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him, uh, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as Shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's what he's doing in this account with a lawyer. Are you a sheep or a goat? And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, what? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? I don't. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I don't remember that. And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know what that shows? That shows that these people, these sheep who were true followers of Jesus Christ, unlike the lawyer goat, they did this because it was who they were now. Love, feed, care, visit, share. And the judge stands and says, you actually did it to me. You might not have seen it, you might not have known it, but you did it to me, as in doing it to the least of them, you did it to me. Because this is fruit of the life changed by the grace of God. It's not someone up here going, come on, guys, let's love them, let's serve them, let's do it. It's behold Jesus and watch him change your heart to where he makes you want to do it. And it's not a burden. You rejoice in it. You delight in it. It fills you up to give and love and serve. See, the gospel changes our hearts to care about the needs of others. Father, thank you that you have revealed your word and your truth to us. God, I ask that this story would diagnose us today, that we would look in this mirror of your word and let it confront us and evaluate us. That if there are those of us here right now who are sheep, who are lawyers, who are just doing Christian service and going to church and doing all the spiritual things because we want to, like the lawyer, justify ourselves. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth, to confess our sin and repent of it, to not place our hope in our ability to justify ourselves, but abandon that and place all hope on what Jesus Christ did on the cross paying for our sin to justify us before the Father. I ask if there's anyone here or online that does not know you or that has been placing their faith in themselves, that you would help them today to see the truth, believe the truth, 
and to place all their eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ. To place their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did so that, Lord, you could send your spirit inside to change us, transform us into that new creation who rejoices in you, who loves you and delights in you and wants to please you and wants to serve you and wants to care for the other. Not for our own sake, not for our own glory, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.